T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one... They're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. In difficult times, many people turn to the arts for relief and inspiration and comfort. And 2020 has been nothing if not a showcase for difficult times. But creative people suffer like everyone else among us, and hard times can make it harder to make art. Well, this weekend, we're going to ask a couple of people in Chicago's arts community how they can keep going, or can they? Hello, I'm political editor Craig Delamore, and this is At Issue. Chicago has a vibrant arts community. The city's music venues, museums, theaters, galleries, and studios are all over. Artists are creating and singing and dancing and acting and showing their works. And of course, it all costs money. And even in the good times, finding the money for art sometimes competes with finding money for food or shelter. And these are not good times right now. But the city and the arts community go on. And in this half hour, we're going to talk about how it's going. My guests are part of a collaborative of 40 Chicagoland arts and philanthropic organizations known as Enrich Chicago. Nina Sanchez is director of Enrich Chicago. She is a daughter of Pilsen, who has been uh, or has had a passion for equity in the arts. She's also been an educator, teaching young people to become leaders. Now she's using her skills to fight racism in the arts. Vershawn Sanders Ward founded the Red Clay Dance Company in Brooklyn, New York, but it is now based in Chicago. She'll tell us more about it in a few minutes, but it's an Afro-contemporary dance company. They have their own dance academy, a youth ensemble, and provide educational programming for schools. And we are conducting this interview via Zoom conferencing, so thanks to all for joining me. Nina Sanchez, let's start with you. Tell us about the organization and, and the mission of Enrich Chicago. Well, thanks for having us. Enrich Chicago was started in 2014, and it was brought together by a group of leaders in the arts and culture and philanthropic spaces as part of a broader ecosystem. That, and this group really wanted to address the root cause of the inequities we see in arts and culture, around representation of people of color in leadership roles, um, but also in the availability and access to resources. And so they committed to starting with their own institutions, look at the ways that we could collectively transform toward a more equitable future in arts and culture. And, and talk a little bit about the, the representation part, because I mean, you're not just talking about racism within the arts community, you're talking about in the actual art itself. 
Yes, absolutely. We, we think that we um, exist to ensure that the leadership in our arts institutions, um, the availability and access to our arts and culture institutions, and that the artists were being presented, um, that we exist to ensure that that reflects our community in this city, which as we know is roughly a third African-American, a third Latino, and a third white. Um, how broad is the art that's encompassed by the organizations that are in in rich Chicago. I mean, give, give me in a sense of the kind of arts that we are talking about. Oh, thanks for that question. We, we spend the whole ecosystem with representation from every artistic discipline, museums, dance companies, um, visual arts organizations, um, and film and theater. So, uh, so they're all in the mix within Enriched Chicago. And, and is it, is it, also fighting racism within the arts community. I mean, what is the situation? And, and you know, you can, um, you don't have to give me 20 second answers. We are actually <laughs> going to uh, be able to talk about this, but let's talk about that because I think that's an interesting and, and sometimes not, uh, not often highlighted issue about the arts community itself. And it's not really one community. It's, it's a lot of community. Yeah, so we think that um, that the that systemic racism is exists in arts and culture as well, as it does in every sector in the U.S. society, right? So it does show up both as who is in leadership. It does show up as gaps in the artists being presented. You know, who are we going, whose art are we going to encounter when we're in museum spaces or in theaters or dance performances? Um, and it also shows up as um, the amount of funding these organizations can get to do the vital work that they're doing. And so we want to move this conversation to more than just a conversation about what is happening between two people or potentially groups of people to think about how our institutions reflect and carry out inequities, right? Despite our best intentions, right? We're not saying that it's intentional, but we are saying that because of the history of this country, because of race being a fault line in this country, that we see these outcomes that are negatively impacting communities of color. And we see that in the arts as well, right? For our students, it's what kind of um, arts available, uh, what kind of arts are available in their classrooms, in their school settings, right in their own neighborhoods, right? So it trickles down throughout the whole of our society, the whole of our community. So the, uh, the art is, is, is reflected somewhat, or what's reflected in the art is in some ways the representation of the people within the community itself. In other words, like you said, it's not intentional, but is it that we're not seeing enough representation in the artwork because of who populates the art community? In some ways, yes, in some ways. But again, we go back to the structural issues that, that um, bring us to this outcome. Right. To pursue a career in the arts means that you have to have some access to resources to make that possible. Right. You have to have some access to community and family support to make that possible as a livelihood. Um, you have to have access to people and networks, which, again, is going to look different depending on your own racial and cultural background um, than it might for some, you know, for some people than for others. So there are things structurally in place that prevent there from being as um, prolific a life or prevent us for, from seeing the art that does actually exist, right? Because we're measuring it by the same ruler when we really need a 
whole different set of rulers <laughs> and a whole different set of, of glasses to, to look and see what art means and looks like to different communities. And now I want to bring in uh, our other guest for Sean Sanders Ward. Uh, and thank you for joining us as well. Uh, tell us a little bit about the work of Red Clay Dance. Hi, good, good afternoon. My apologies for being late. Um, oh, no, it's, I was actually we're glad to have you. In rehearsal, making some dance. Um, so Red Clay Dance Company is an Afro-contemporary dance organization. Um, we're all-female ensemble of seven dancers, and uh, we create work that is rooted in African diasporic movement practices. So we look at how African traditional dance has grown out outside of the continent and looking at how it evolves and, and looks in, U in the U.S., but also other places where you'll find um, Black African descent people. So our work is um, rooted in that, and then we also uh, frame our our purpose or the the reason behind why we make art. Uh, we use this this term artivism. So it's a, a connection of art and activism. So we find our voice and our way to activate change in our communities through the work that we put on the stage and also uh, through our education program. So we we teach youth and adults um, all different dance forms, but but. Uh, I think ultimately looking at dance as a way to, to activate social change and community engagement. Mm. Um, and how, how does that work? What, what are, give me an example of how dance can help bring about social change. Sure, so most of the time I would say it's about beginning a conversation about, a, about a, an idea or a concept. So we did a piece, um, maybe like three or four years ago called Written on the Flesh. And it dealt specifically with this idea of um, uh, looking at the lens of, of racism specifically in the terms of black and white and the race as a construct. Um, we talked about white supremacy and where that, where that uh, raises to or comes to the surface in dance. So certain, I think kind of what Nina was saying, certain uh, dance forms are seen at a higher level. So a ballet or, or a more classical modern um, might be valued more in a certain community than um, a more traditional practice. And so um, not only how it sits in our, in, our, in our society as a whole, but looking at it through the lens of dance and how we can begin to shift that. And, uh, and that funding culturally specific dance forms should be equal to Eurocentric dance forms. Um, so that, that work written on the flesh also looked at the residue. What's the residue that we carry with us in our skin? You know, what are things that, assumptions that are made about us based on our exterior appearance that are historical, right? And so and how do we uh, acknowledge that, but then begin to reframe that for ourselves? Um, so that, that's an example I can give. No, that's, that's a very good one, too, and thank you for that. But let me ask the other, the, the, the uh, headline or the contemporary uh, uh, question here, and that is, we're in the middle of a pandemic. I know you, you just came from creating dance. How does that work during the shutdowns and the other challenges of the coronavirus pandemic? Yes, yeah, so we actually are just getting back to rehearsal. We had to stop rehearsals in March and we were getting ready for our spring concert, which was supposed to go up at the Hare Washington Cultural Center in April. So we've been off 
um, until last month. We, we had a, a residency at an art space in North Carolina, and that was the first time the company was actually back in space together. As you can see, I have my masks. We are learning how to dance and breathe in masks, which is very challenging. Um, we have to take a lot more breaks during rehearsal. We're like on a break right now um, and finding spaces that have good ventilation. Uh, but it's it's relearning. Uh, one of the dancers just said, you know, it's relearning how to breathe and, and understanding your body more deeply about what we need to sustain as we move through space. So it's been a it's been a relearning process. Uh, we're excited to be back, but we're also still very cautious um, as we you know move in space together with each other, giving each other enough space, and we talk. The communication is has to be more clear. Like, I feel comfortable with this. I don't feel comfortable with that. You know, I'm, I'm feeling a certain way today. It may not be good for me to be in the space with everyone. Um, so we're, we've done Zoom calls. I'm not a fan of Zoom rehearsals because you just don't have enough room in your house when you're kicking a chair or something. So we're, we're excited to be back in, in, in the space together, but we're still very cautious and we're only doing three weeks and then we're gonna be off from Thanksgiving to the end of the year. So giving some space in between the rehearsal periods. Um, and, then, and, then, and then testing, we've had the dancers tested. So it's a lot more steps than we're used to, but we're still trying to push through, you know, resilient, being, being the resilient art form that we are. Well, and let's talk about the other kinds of steps that have to be taken, and that's the steps to keep the actual organizations going, the financial steps. Nina Sanchez, funding the arts isn't easy. Uh, how do the various companies with their different disciplines get enough money each year to do what they do? I mean, let, you know, let's go over some, a, a bit of the basics first so people understand what we're talking about. Right, most of our artistic um, institutions are relying on a combination of private funding from private philanthropy um, and individuals, um, as well as revenue from ticket sales. And yes, uh, direct revenue and support from our local government institutions and, and in some cases statewide um, agencies. And so there's a combination and mix of funds that, that most artistic um, institutions are aspiring to. Um, and of course, um, as, as institutions that have governing boards, they rely on these folks to help them drum up some of those private contributions to sustain their work. So um, it's, it's a little bit of an art, not a science, um, to meet um, some healthy balance between all of those sources. And we do know that for our, some of our smaller institutions, there is an outsized reliance on funding from uh, local, municipal, or statewide agencies to sustain their work. And this is also the case for individual artists, right, who are competing for individual artist grants, residencies, and fellowship programs to sustain their own practices. And I want to get into that in a uh, much deeper, but uh, let's remind people you are listening to News Radio 780's at issue. I'm political editor Craig Delamore. We're talking about the arts and funding of the arts in a time of crisis. My guests are Nina Sanchez, director of Enrich Chicago, and Vershawn Sanders Ward founder, CEO, and artistic director of the Red Clay Dance Company. So Chicago's Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, which uh, sometimes goes by the uh, moniker D-Case, uh, has a cultural grant program 
well, one for individual or programs, I should say, one for individual artists, another for various nonprofit arts organizations. It also provides space for programming and exhibitions, but uh, it's not limitless. And, uh, and for an, uh, an umbrella organization like Enrich in, in, in Chicago and for a company like Red Clay, what does that mean? I mean, is it like a competition? What 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 is the the landscape for actually getting the money to do what you all do? Well, I can definitely speak as an arts organization that has applied for and, and received money from DCase. Um, typically, the amount of funding is based on your operating budget, so it's it's not an endless amount and. Um, that within itself tends to be very political, right? Um, knowing that budgets of culturally specific organizations tend to be a little smaller than white-led institutions. So there's already a limit going into that process of how much you will be allotted to receive. Um, so rather than based on actual need. And uh, we, but we have received grant funding from DCASE in the past. We are in the off-cycle year, so every... Um, and I don't know the number of years off the top of my head, but every certain amount of years you have to sit out a cycle and then you can come back in the next year. So it is a, it's a limited fund. I would say in Chicago, it's definitely competitive. Um, it's one of the, I think one of the earlier grants that Red Clay Bands received and we've gradually gotten a little bit more as our budget has increased. Uh, and I believe that uh, there's a new process um, the past like two years, I think they were given some larger grants based on, on projects. And then I know that there's some specificity with um, um, art forms. So I think this year was like the year of Chicago music. I believe next year is the year of dance. So I think during that time, you may get a little bit more weight for your application. Oh, so Nina Sanchez, uh, looking at it from the, uh, the, the 10,000 foot level where you're looking at the whole panoply of organizations, what does that kind of a system do? And now right now we're talking about city funding, but we need to fold in what else is coming in uh, to keep organizations alive. Yeah, so I think that we're, we're looking at an arts and culture sector that has been severely impact by the, impacted by the global health pandemic, right? They cannot perform, they cannot open their doors, or they must do so in a much more limited way. Uh, so that significantly cuts down on that revenue or revenue stream for many of our institutions. I think that, um, you know, I want to just note that for some of our smaller institutions, um, DK's funding sometimes ends up being one of the few sources of, of funding that they can access, right? Again, because we're looking at um, oftentimes smaller organizations with um, a smaller team, a team, you know, you know, like Vershawn, people who are wearing multiple hats um, and have a lot of responsibility to go through a process, which actually is not an easy process to, to, to go through to keep, even compete for this funding. Um, and I think that if we're, again, to look at a root cause, a root um, cause of the issue that we're seeing right now, um, it's that uh, our funding has been below level for a long time. When we compare ourselves to other major metropolitan areas of similar market size, the city of Chicago is the only city that doesn't have a designated budget line item um, in their budget for support of arts and culture. It is exclusively dependent on you know, hotel 
hotel tax and, and tourism revenue. And so what we're seeing right now is the, is the impact of having a sector in the arts that is limited in its ability to, to produce and to um, sell tickets. And we have a tourism sector that is also severely impacted by a global health crisis um, with no backup with no backup plan. And so I think that we have to um, look at that um, because the case funding is one of the few and transparent sources of funding that there are for the arts and culture, right? Unlike private foundations, they, they, their information is public. It is accessible to anyone who wishes to spend time looking at who is receiving the money and how much. Um, because they have a process that is a bit more standardized. Um, again, it does, um, bring equity in different ways to the arts and culture space. Um, and we know that there have been significant efforts on their part to grow that base of funding um, in different ways, grow how that money and change how that money is being invested in different ways. And so we see this as a ripe opportunity to take advantage of this moment to say, what is the root cause of the problem we're seeing right now? How do we actually change a system to be more responsive to this perhaps happening sometime again in the future, right? So that our institutions, which are vital, especially our institutions run by and for people of color in our neighborhoods, don't have to close their doors, right? If even one institution has to close their doors as a result of this time, then I think that we will all suffer for it. Um, let me first ask about philanthropy, uh, which, frankly, is being asked to do a lot in this time. But, I mean, there are philanthropic sources for funding. Uh, I know, for example, one example is the Field Foundation has a fund for media and storytelling. I would think that maybe somewhere in there, there might be uh, some money for the arts. There are got to be other organizations. But could arts organizations be more aggressive about fundraising? Uh, and less dependent on government funding. I think many of our arts organizations are pretty aggressive about fundraising. I think that, again, if we step back to look at the structural issue, the structural issue is what is the access to wealth across our communities, particularly our communities of color in Chicago and beyond, right? So we have a structural issue here with access to wealth that is generational, which a lot of our private philanthropy, you know, holds. And so I have been tickled and really pleased to see the ways that philanthropy has stepped up in this moment. I've been really pleased and proud of the work the partners of Enrich Chicago have taken on this issue to change funding guidelines, to change how they even give out the money and how much money they're giving out to, to institutions. Um, we've seen at the national level, the Ford Foundation takes some pretty big steps, right, to freeing up funds from their endowment much beyond what is legally required of them to make a significant investment that is going to be more than just a stopgap for this moment. And I think that's the missing part of the equation for us here. How do we get past this idea of thinking about this as a temporary relief to think about what is the long-term resilience look like? What does a long-term relationship with these institutions, especially those that some who have sometimes never received private funding because it's a family foundation and it's highly discretionary, or you must be invited. Um, and again, you're being asked to uphold a whole set of ways of talking about your work, reporting on your work, um, marketing your work that, that isn't accessible, that isn't authentic, that in some ways can be dehumanizing, right? To, to paint our communities with this brush 
of who it is that we are and why we exist and why we need your support. Now, let me ask both of you the question that I think some people who are listening right now will want to ask, but uh, might be afraid to, and that is, what do you say to people who feel the arts are wonderful? We love the arts, we need the arts, but right now we need to feed our families. Right now there are people in our communities who don't have jobs, and if the government's going to be funding anything right now, it ought to be that. And Vershawn, you start, but I want both of you to, to talk about that. Sure. So my first response would be the arts is my job. Um, the artists that are in that dance studio right now, this is their job. This is not a hobby. This is how they pay. This is how they support their families. This is how they, they put food on the table. This is how they, they pay their rent. These are jobs. Um, the creative sector is a sector. And, and I employ dancers, right? And so when you say that um, we need jobs, like these are jobs. And so that's my first response. And I think that that has to, that has to shift the, the way that people view the arts as a hobby. It's not a hobby, it's a professional, it's a professional career and it's a way that you can make a living. Um, and then I will say that the arts are essential. We, we, we did a big push um, after, right after COVID, just reminding folks that those movies you watched, you know, those dance performances you watched, uh, the music you listen to as you're cleaning your house, those are all made by artists that, that deserve our support because we consume the art. So I think you should imagine a world without those things. And I think that might reframe the way you think about it. Again, is it being essential? Because it, it is an expression of our humanity. And without it, I think our humanity would definitely be suffering more than it is now. Mm -hmm. Nina. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Last time we talked about this, Rashawn and I, you know, we talked about what is getting people through this pandemic, right? As we hunker down at home, it's this like sudden and wide access to all sorts of artistic expression, usually at no cost, right? So you are making it through this pandemic. You're feeling a little bit human and in touch with what is beautiful in the world. We can thank artists for that, right? We can also thank artists for the 30.3 billion dollars they bring to the Illinois economy every year right? And the 5.1 million jobs. So it's, it, this isn't an either or situation. It is a both and situation, right? How do we understand that arts are actually going to be what get us through this, that are going to help us find new ways to stay healthy, emotionally, psychologically, right? Uh, spiritually, um, that, uh, that this is not an either or, that we don't have to make a single choice, but that we can choose to invest and value arts, careers, people in the arts, and what they bring to our whole society economically and otherwise through greater investment in them, just as we would any other industry, provide tax credits, right? Provide changes to zoning, all of those things that we do to welcome certain kinds of businesses to the city and the state. We need to take that mindset and apply it to the work that our art artists colleagues are doing. Um, the last thing I wanna ask about few minutes, the couple of minutes that we have left, is what's the immediate future like for the artistic organizations? I mean, are there a number that will not survive this pandemic because of all the kinds of restrictions and problems that we're talking about and the lack of money? Many have had to make some considerable sacrifice already to furlough staff, lay off staff, cancel full seasons, right? Institutions large and small. 
Um, and so uh, I think we're fearful that they won't come back again. I think we're also optimistic that if the arts can't find a way out of this problem, right, we're currently facing, if the arts can't find solutions to, um, to disrupt systemic racism, then who can, right? And so I think we have a real example in the arts to look to um, and to follow their lead. Um, Vershawn, are we going to, I mean, is Red Clay Dance Company going to uh, make it through this? Uh, You've got a a compact body of people here. Are are you optimistic about the future? Yes, I mean, I'm I'm always optimistic. I'm just, I'm an artist and you find a way out of no way. That's how I've, you know, just really approached it. And so yes, the additional support would be greatly appreciated, but I envision Red Clay making it through I think um, holding on to as much as we can of who we were before, but also reshaping who we are going to be after. I think it will change the organization somewhat, um, maybe for the better, but I I think um, it's a part of being creative and shifting and pivoting, which we continue to do and we will continue to do. But yes, I I plan to be here. Um, You know, we'll, we'll be making dance some kind of way, some way, somewhere and continuing to share our work with the world. Um, so yeah, I, my, my hope is, is optimistic that we are still around and, um, and continuing to fight forward. Well, I wanna thank you both. That was uh, Vershawn Sanders Ward, the head of the Red Clay Dance Company. Also, thank you so much to Nina Sanchez, the uh, director of Enrich Chicago, both of you for spending this time with us. To our listeners, if you'd like a copy of this program or to hear it again, please visit our website at wbbmnewsradio.com. There should be a link at the bottom of the page. You can also find our podcasts on radio.com. I'll be back next week with another edition of that issue, and I hope you'll be listening. Until then, I'm Craig Delamore, News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, oh, oh.